we try to think about this from the perspective of what is the climate need and what is the most impactful thing that we can do to fill the gap. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Nan Ransahoff, head of climate at Stripe. Stripe is a billion dollar startup that when not simplifying payments and increasing the GDP of the internet, is working to ensure carbon removal technology develops at the pace needed to prevent the most catastrophic effects of climate change. Nan and her team are working to build a large-scale voluntary market for carbon removal by pooling demand from Stripe's 1 million plus users and then using those funds to help promising new carbon removal technologies accelerate down the cost curve. Prior to Stripe, Nan led product and business teams at Opower, Nest, Uberpool, and Neuro. She received her BA from Harvard University and her MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. During the interview, Nan and I discuss her journey into the world of climate, her mental model for climate action, and the role of carbon removal in achieving net zero emissions. We dive into why Stripe Climate is putting in the legwork so humanity has the menu of options it needs by 2050 to reach net zero emissions. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People, our favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Climate People is also looking to hire recruiters so they can place even more talented people in roles that move the world closer to net zero emissions. If you or someone you know is interested in recruiting for the top climate-focused recruiting agency, get in touch with Climate People founder Brandon Anderson via email at brendan at climatepeople.com. B-R-E-N-D-A-N at climatepeople.com. We'll also put a link in the show notes. I'm incredibly excited to bring this episode to your ears. Stripe is one of just a few companies striving to ensure humanity has the technologies we need to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Please enjoy my conversation with Nan Ranzahoff, head of climate at Stripe. Nan, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I am super excited. You've done a few podcasts, um, so we're going to kind of talk about a lot of things that have already come up. But before we get there, um, I'd love just to start, like, what do you love to talk about as far as climate goes or anything else? So I, climate is a really big space. It sort of encompasses the entirety of our global economy, all of the infrastructure. It is like not one thing, it is so many things. And so one of the things that I've um, has sort of been helpful for me as I've been ramping up on this space and is, is always generates kind of interesting conversation and chatting with other folks is what is the mental model for climate and how do you organize all of these disparate facts into some framework that, you know, makes conceptual sense that you can build on when you get more details. So I think that that's fun. I also love talking about carbon removal. That's what I do every day. Um, so, so happy to dive into either of those if useful. Yeah, well, that's perfect. Thanks for setting me up for success. Let's talk about your <laughs> framework. Um, I'm happy to share mine, but I'm curious what you think first. Oh, I would, I'm very excited to hear yours. Um, so I, you know, high level, the world emits about 50 gigatons of emissions every year. And in order to stay within the recommended warming limits, we need to get that to-ish net zero by 2050. And we have to get about halfway there by 2030. And there are two big levers that we can pull to do that. The first is we can stop emitting in the first place. 
And the second is we can remove CO2 already in the atmosphere and store it somewhere, ideally permanently. Um, the world is going to have to do a lot of both. It is a yes and um, sort of situation. And, you know, I, I tend to think about each of these different levers as supply and demand. There is supply, which is all of the companies that are, um, in the case of carbon removal, for example, doing the carbon removal, whether it's planting trees or direct air capture or enhanced weathering, et cetera, and demand are the customers that are purchasing those things. Um, and I think that each of the levers can be broken down into supply and demand, which, you know, is not, there are different ways to look at the climate, you know, build a mental model for climate, but um, having a basic structure to hang those details on, I, I found at least for me has been useful organizing tool for that information. And I don't want to, I want to like really focus on kind of stuff that you brought off, but just so the framework, um, other pieces that I think about are within that space. Cause right now we're talking like carbon, right. But, I, um, some of the model that I've built through the, through the journey of the podcast and my learnings and all that stuff is like, I feel like we've got carbon in one vertical kind of like yeah. biodiversity in another water circularity and zero waste are kind of becoming its own, like super in vogue. Um, but we're here to talk about carbon. And I also ha- happen to think that carbon is kind of the most, the most impactful, although I'm sure, uh, someone's going to slap my wrist for that. Can we kind of like wind back the clock and go for your, your climate journey? And so as I understand it, let me know if I'm wrong, but you kind of been focusing on climate for 10 plus years, your climate consciousness sparked during college. Can you tell me about like, what was it? What was kind of that paradigm shift for you? And what are those first few weeks, months, years, uh, look like? Yeah. So I, 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 I remember being interested in climate sort of very, very early in like elementary school, middle school. Um, but this sparked, you know, the, the, I guess initial ignition was, um, in college, I started a, a club called the, the council for business and the environment, trying to explore how the private sector can help accelerate environmental change. Um, after college, I went into consulting for a couple of years, which had, which had nothing to do with climate. I quickly realized about myself that I care a lot about um, the the problem space that I'm in and joined a company called Opower. Um, I was looking for companies at the time that were doing something uh, impactful in climate, but that were in the private sector and moving really quickly. And at the time, there were a couple of really exciting companies. Opower was one of them. Nest was another that I ended up working at as well. Um, But this was kind of the first wave of climate tech companies back in 2010, 2011, 2012, etc. And I, I sort of, during that time, realized that this is a space that I care a lot about. Um, since then, I've worked at, um, I've, I've sort of tried to apply a climate lens to most of the jobs that I've had. When I was at Uber, I was specifically working on Uber Pool, trying to get more people into fewer cars. Um, and then what brought me to Stripe Climate, which we'll talk more about, was essentially trying to re-educate myself on the climate math in uh, 2018, after reading the 2018 IPCC report. And, you know, despite having been in the space for a while, I actually, there were a lot there, there were and still are a lot of gaps in my knowledge. Um, And one of the things that really stands out from the 2018 IPCC report is, geez, in addition to a lot of emissions reduction, we're also gonna have to do a lot of carbon removal. Who are the companies that are building this and who are the customers that are buying this stuff? Um, And so I sort of became obsessed with this question of, how do you build a market for carbon removal in the absence of effective policy? I wish I was a policymaker. I was, wish I was a scientist, um, but I am neither of those things. So trying to figure out how to, 
how to make a difference um, in some of the emerging gaps in the field that we are going to need to collectively solve this problem. So I've, in short, I've worked on both the emissions reduction and the carbon removal side of things, and there are a near infinite number of, of places to points of entry in climate, but that's been a bit of my journey. Are there any lessons that you take today or um, connections from that climate club you started in college? The role of the private sector in solving the climate crisis is significant. Um, that is the, the meta takeaway. The you know climate change is the canonical collective action problem. And this is the kind of thing that governments in theory are supposed to help organize and help us, help us coordinate. Um, there has been, you know, for lack of a better word, a pretty abysmal effort from global governments to do that. And the private sector is having to step up and play a bigger and bigger role, um, whether we like it or not, uh, in solving that, in solving this problem. So I think, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of the themes back in 2008, 2009 are quite similar today. Okay, awesome. We're going to, we're definitely going to kind of get into private and public. Um, but before we do there, let's talk about kind of first principles of carbon removal. We did an interview with Watershed Climate, um, and they talk about they have defined what net zero is. Um, a huge part of being net zero is after, you know, kind of doing the most impact you can is carbon removal credits as opposed to kind of carbon offsets or carbon avoidance. Um, similarly, Microsoft kind of on their journey in 2012, they say we're going to be carbon neutral. They're purchasing offsets. And now like they're saying we're going to be carbon negative by 2030 and exclusively using the term carbon removal credits. So like for someone who's never heard of it, how do you define the difference? How do you think about it? What's your mental model? So again, with climate, there are two main levers, right? CO2 goes into the air and it comes out of the air. And so we can call those different things, but like it only goes in and it only stays out. And the words offset and avoidance, I think, are very loaded. They have, a, they mean a lot of different things um, depending on who's using them and how they're being used. But in essence, you know, what we need to do is reduce emissions from 50 to sub 10 by 2050. And we need to scale carbon removal from zero to about 10 gigatons by 2050 in order for those to collectively add up to net zero. Um, and so the challenge offsets technically can refer to both sides of the equation. They can refer to emissions reduction. They can refer to, refer to avoidance, which is basically not emitting, saying you are, we're going to emit something, but weren't going but, but not actually emitting it. So I would sort of classify that as um, largely falling under the emissions reduction level. And then there's carbon removal of what's already in the air or the ocean that we can pull out and put back from whence it came. Um, yeah, th that's a, the, the, at least a high level mental model for, for at least how I think about it. Yeah, and so if I wanted to be net zero myself um, or of a company, you know, uh, I think they're kind of one and the same in this instance. After I've done all the removal I can, there's still pieces that I'm gonna miss if the reduction I, economy. yeah so like you know i've gone uh, maybe maybe a person isn't the best example i know there's kind of a lot of baggage mm -hmm. with like putting the onus on people but it's easy for this for the sake right i've gone vegetarian um and there's debate about right within there but for for, for sake so and i have we'll call it like uh 16 tons left over that i need to yep. that i need to kind of reduce off of my plate off my balance sheet yep is carbon, can I pay someone, like from your from your perspective, can I pay someone to avoid emissions? And does that help the, bring the world closer to net zero emissions? Or like really, if I'm like gonna like do my part, I should be paying for carbon removal? Yes, so the first step that you mentioned that I think is, is always worth underscoring is that people and companies should reduce as much as possible first, like period, full stop, the reductions have to happen. 
what do you do with the leftover? So I'll answer that question. Let's answer that question by looking at like what we need to do by, again, by 2050, we're going to need 10 gigatons-ish by 2050 to achieve the scale needed. And there are some of those solutions that exist today. Like an incremental tree planted will remove some CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, the problem is that the solutions that exist today, whether it's in the quote unquote carbon removal bucket or quote unquote offsets bucket, those by themselves are not going to scale to the amount of CO2 that we are going to need to remove to just make the math work. And so the challenge is, how do we make sure that we are you know, pulling the levers that are available today, but also building out the entire portfolio of solutions that are needed to get to that number? And a lot of the offsets that are available on the market today, whether they you know, are technically removal or avoidance or reduction, those solutions by themselves are not going to get us all the way there. We will run out of arable land to plant additional trees. Soil carbon sequestration, afforestation, reforestation only actually take us so far. So how do we make sure that we are spending the dollars now to pull those new solutions into existence to, so that they can get to the scale needed? Awesome. So let's let's tie back to Stripe, which is kind of where you're at now and what you're doing is scaling all this stuff. Stripe has come up quite a bit in our show. Two of our guests, Heirloom Carbon uh, and mm-hmm. Charm Industrial, are both uh, beneficiaries. I'm not sure, um, investees of Stripe Climate. We're and customers. Yeah. Customers. Okay. Uh, so to, like, can you tell us a little bit about how does that work? Um, why did you choose to go with those companies or really any company? Like, What are the principles that you're looking for when you're going to invest in a carbon removal technology? Yeah. So to to start off, I mean, what is Stripe Climate? We are trying to, again, help make sure that the world has the portfolio of solutions needed to get to the, this, this 10 gigaton number by, by 2050. And we are specifically focused not on purchasing existing from existing solutions that are, you know, mature and cheap today, but instead trying to fill that gap. So we have, um, and importantly, we are not taking an equity stake in any of these companies, we are purchasing from them. We are literally the customer that is buying the, the carbon removal that they are selling. So we, when we look at purchasing from companies and are evaluating um, who to purchase from, we have released a set of target criteria that essentially are the spirit of which is to characterize that gap. And we look at a couple of different things. The first is, does this technology have a path to low cost, high volume, permanent carbon removal by 2050. Um, We are fine paying a high price per ton today, so long as there is a glide path to a low low price per ton in the future. Um, And importantly, we are also looking for solutions that are not constrained by arable land. So we're very conscious of of looking for carbon sinks that are beyond the biosphere or beyond at least, you know, using up physical, physical um, physical land that might have high opportunity costs and other uses like housing people or um, growing food. Um, We work with a big panel of scientific experts and governance experts that we have, um, that we have gotten to know over the years. um, And they help us actually evaluate these, these technologies, but that's the spirit of what we're looking for when we are purchasing from the charm industrials of the world and heirloom. And, you know, we were, we are the first customer for charm and we often are in that position for, we have 10 companies in our portfolio today. We are the first customer for six of them. Um, and ultimately are, again, trying to help them get down the cost curve and scale up by being that that sort of buyer of, of first resort. Yeah. Um, two questions. Uh, I, I think I want to talk about like kind of being the first buyer, which is 
from from my lens, Stripe is kind of like they're the you know they're the market maker, right? And they're the first mover in these industries. And in the world that I live on, kind of on a day to day in this transportation world, there seems to be a little bit of a hesitation of being the first mover and the market maker because you can't ascribe value for whatever reason. And Breakthrough Energy is working um, on this catalyst program, right, as a way I think to kind of yeah. give that value. But what, like, how does Stripe ascribe value to it? And then what would you say to companies or leaders or decision makers who have an opportunity to invest, although there's a premium, a green premium, but they're not ready to do it? We try to think about this from the perspective of like, what is the climate need and what is the most impactful thing that we can do to fill the the gaps? We look for under-resourced gaps that can have, um, that, that we can have a sort of outsized impact on with every incremental dollar that we spend. And so you're right, we are not, we don't have a per ton target that we are going after. We are trying to use those dollars in the most highly levered way. Um, I think the thing, you know, when we think about being the first customer and why is that so valuable in the field of carbon removal, the weird thing about carbon removal is unlike electricity, right? Like when you think about renewable development, there's a green premium that you need to subsidize in order to get that technology to be at least as low cost as the next best alternative, right? You want solar to be at least as cheap as, as coal. The weird thing in carbon removal is, you know, we're trying to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and store it somewhere where you can't use it anymore. So it's like, there's no intrinsic value for this. And in theory, policy can fix that by putting a price on carbon, or there's a lot of different mechanisms that they could, that, that policy can, can put in place in order to create that market. But the power of the signal in carbon removal is that somebody is going to buy the thing that these carbon removal companies are selling. That is a unique dynamic in carbon removal. Um, and it is crazy that in some ways that Stripe is the first customer for these companies because you know climate is not our core business and carbon removal is not our core business, but um, we are trying to push the ball as far as, as, as we can. So interesting. And um... I'm going to keep going on this train, but remind me, I want to come back to how do you determine what price uh, we, you, you pay per ton? And I obviously <laughs> can remind myself, um, but which is kind of the thing you mentioned that like, this is not Stripe's uh, core business at the same time, for whatever reason, I kind of envisioned this as, as like the AWS of Stripe. I, I you know, I don't run Stripe. I'm, I'm not the expert in the payments, but is Stripe. And the reason that I kind of see that is that there are many companies who want to pay for carbon removal, but they don't want to necessarily be the ones they just like, it's a problem that they don't want to solve themselves. Right. And so for, for you, for how, when you guys look at the value add, do you look at it from a sense that like you're scaling the carbon removal market itself, or are you scaling the infrastructure so that companies can purchase the carbon removal credits or, or some sort of both? Right now. So the principle that we look at this at, at this through is like, where do we think we can have again, the most high leverage uh, effect we view our work in kind of three main buckets. The first bucket is how do we raise as much money for frontier carbon removal as possible? And this is getting more money into the pot. So we are building products that make it really easy for businesses to contribute some of their revenue, their end consumers to contribute some of their income. Basically, how do we sort of leverage all of the distribution and infrastructure that Stripe has to let entities choose to contribute, voluntarily contribute some of, some of their income to carbon removal? Um, so that's like the demand side. The second piece is how do we spend those dollars as effectively as possible? This is the supply side. We are working to find really promising companies and accelerate those companies down the cost curve. And then the third bucket is what we call ecosystem. And if you, again, think about the first bucket is demand, the second bucket is supply. 
How do we make sure that the entire ecosystem, that supply is matched efficiently with demand? How do we make sure the right verification mechanisms are in place so that this market doesn't go the same way that offsets went? What are all of the different things that need to happen so that carbon removal can robustly get to the stage that it needs to as quickly as possible? So it's a bit of a convoluted answer. Like right now we're playing and we're, we're in, we have our hands in a lot of different pots, but I do imagine that changing as this ecosystem changes, which it is doing really, really quickly. Okay, so on the first one, uh, more money in the pot. We talked about government yeah. versus private earlier. Uh, I just read in the news there's there's six million dollars going to DAC from from one of the bills, and there's potential for up to six billion in the new infrastructure. Um, can you tell me more about what we talked about earlier, kind of the role of private versus government? And as an example, I heard Ryan, uh, who's another member of the team, talk about how solar uh, in the 70s and 80s was mostly government funded and then it scaled like 10,000 X or the price reduced 10,000 X into uh, where we are today. And so I'm just curious, like, where are we on that curve? When did industry jump in then? Why is industry jumping now? You know, take it wherever you want to go. If we think about how big the market for carbon removal is going to be at 10 gigatons, uh, it is pretty staggering. So depending on what you believe about what the price per ton of CO2 is going to be in the future, call it 10 to $100 per ton. Um, that is a $100 billion to a $1 trillion market per year. It is extremely unlikely that voluntary markets, that private companies volunteering to, to pay, you know, pay for carbon removal alone are going to get us anywhere near that number. So policy has to play a role in creating a compliance market to get to that scale. I view the private sector currently today as like getting us to first base. We need to like get these technologies to a mature enough place where once there are the right policy mechanisms in place, we have some solutions that are you know ready to be deployed, but the private sector alone cannot get us to that to that huge number. Um, and I think there are you know there are a lot of really different interesting roles that government can play in accelerating this technology all the way from on the supply side, how do we get more money into R&D? Um, how do we improve infrastructure, i.e. like classics wells for the sequestration for some of the, that some of these technologies need? And on the demand side, how do we use government as a huge procurement lever to actually buy CO2 um, as part of their own net zero strategies. You know, we have all these countries that are committing to 1.5 degree targets and emissions reduction, huge part of it, carbon removal, also a huge part of it. And to the extent that we can get governments thinking about um, procurement of carbon removal as part of their overall climate strategies as a country, that's a really powerful lever that I think can take us quite a bit further than, um, than where we are today. Number two, you mentioned spending it wisely, and which is kind of brings me perfectly back. Like, how do you determine what price to pay for a ton? Oh, well, it is essentially today a cost plus model. So we are um, we are looking at what the underlying costs of these technologies are and then factoring in some margin on top of that for the companies themselves. But it's largely driven by cost because these companies have very different. There's a lot of heterogeneity in the kinds of companies that we're seeing. Um, and some of them have really high capex. You know, you have to you have to buy a calciner, for example. Um, and some of them have more modular capex and lower capex with higher variable costs. It totally depends on the type of technology. So we're we are trying to take a pretty flexible approach at this point, meeting the companies where they are, as long as they can demonstrate to us that they have an aggressive path to low costs in the future. And now it's not just Stripe's money; it's other companies' money as well. Exactly. So there are over 6,000 businesses that are contributing about 1% of their revenue 
to carbon removal. And then we pull that together and use it to collectively buy on behalf of all of them as well as Stripe. And it's pretty neat. It's, um, it's amazing. And it's also interesting. It's kind of like in line with like the decentralized world of like crypto, right? In the sense that like what um, accreditation or standards or, um, you know, values or principles do you guys use to, so that these people are trusting, these 6,000 companies are trusting you with their money to make these decisions, the price per ton, the expected value, all of that good stuff. Because this field is so early, there aren't, um, and again, we're the first customer for a bunch of these companies, This the, the regulations and standards that are um, sort of generalized are not in place yet. So the method that we that we sort of employ until that is the case um, is we have a very rigorous application process that each of these companies apply to. And you can find all of this on stripe.com slash climate. We have a panel of um, scientific advisors who there are two scientific advisors that review every application and one governance reviewer that reviews every application. Um, and then we make a decision, Stripe makes a decision with the help of, of, of all of that, um, all of those different inputs. So we are, we obsess over, uh, over finding the right, you know, finding the best companies and then purchasing from them only after we've gone through, you know, significant scientific reviews, but there are a lot of big unknown questions for these companies, right? When you're a venture capitalist and giving a seed round or um, a series A, you, you think, you know, you can make a case for, for, for a huge business and there's a lot of risk. And I think that that's a pretty good anal analog for where we are today. These companies are really promising, but there's a lot of unknowns and that's sort of the nature of, of new industries, um, which is quite exciting, at least in our, in our view. And so do these 6,000 companies, and when we're talking about the applications, we're talking about a carbon removal company will come apply to, to sell credits. Um, exactly. And so when the 6,000 companies who are giving Stripe money in addition to Stripe using its own money, are they expecting anything in return, a certificate that says you removed X, Y, and Z? No. Amazing. And I think that that's actually what part, what yeah, exactly. Part of what makes this so powerful is that this isn't, the companies that are purchasing today are not doing so because they have a, a, a specific ton target in mind. These are typically, you know, startups and SMBs that otherwise might not have a climate program because it's been really hard to figure out what to do historically. Um, and what we've tried to do is make it really easy to give a fraction of, of revenue. Um, and we Stripe, we take on all of the diligence and figuring out how do we spend that judiciously. But um, the principle that we are using here is how do we how do we make every dollar go as far as it possibly can rather than cater to um, a specific ton target? And that actually has, has given us quite a, quite a bit of latitude to do some, um, some, some different things. It's kind of like effective altruism, but for carbon removal. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, that's, that's a good analogy. Yeah. And then it's perfect segue into like number three, which you talked about, which was the ecosystem. And so the question I have here is, you know, what are you guys inventing along the way as you build out the platform and what do you need to be invented? A couple of things that we are spending our time on right now on the ecosystem side. The first is really around transparency and knowledge sharing. So we publish, we try to publish um, as much as we can. All the applications are available online. The purchase agreements are online. Um, and you know, we hosted a demo day for our companies a couple of months ago to let everybody kind of learn what we've been learning throughout our, our journey. We've started focusing a little bit more on the, the policy piece. Um, how do we make sure that any existing policies today are as inclusive to the, all the different kinds of companies that are popping up 
um, and make sure that we are in a uh, figure out how we can make sure that the world is on a path to that huge market size that we talked about. Um, in terms of what needs to be, what, where are the sort of gaps in the ecosystem right now? I'd, I'd highlight a couple. The first is there are nowhere near enough companies attempting low cost, high volume carbon removal. Um, we got 26 applications this year, which was an increase from the 14, uh, the 14 permanent applications that we got last year, but we need to see a zero at the end of that, right? We need to see an order of magnitude more companies that are starting to do this. Getting to 10, gig 10 gigatons is a fifth of global emissions, right? That is more than the entire US emits every single year. The, the volumes we're talking about are really, really huge. And we are going to need to experiment with a bunch of solutions um, now so that we have a chance of some of those scaling to, to what we need them to be by 2050. Um, so we got to get more companies to the starting line. That's a huge, huge area of focus. Um, and then, you know, on the demand side, this is going to become a bottleneck in the next, you know, however many years. We are going to need huge, huge volumes here. And so how do we, what are the levers that we need to pull now to make sure that that scales to the size needed? Nana and I continue the discussion and dive into her personal mental models after the break. Are you interested in living a net zero life, but you don't know where to start? The Net Zero Life team is working with a few of our colleagues to offer a free sustainability coaching session for a select number of followers. Follow us on Instagram at the Net Zero Life and send us a DM to learn more. Are there 200, could you like list off 260 ways to remove carbon differently right now? Obviously, it's not a test, but like, is that in the realm of possibilities? <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, we've been having a lot of conversations about this um, internally. Like, do you need, you do need 50, 50 companies or 100? There's a lot of different reasons that you need lots of companies. Some of them, you know, most companies that are started fail, right? For that's for any number of execute of reasons around execution or um, uh, technical risk doesn't pan out, etc. So you'll need more than the number of technologies that, that we have. But there are more, I think there are actually more ways to remove carbon than, than maybe most folks realize. A lot of the language that has been used um, has, I think, in my view, sort of prematurely narrowed the field on a couple of solutions like DAC, like direct air capture, and BEX. Um, and those are two, two of more ways to actually remove uh, CO2 from the atmosphere, right? Um, Enhanced weathering is a really exciting area that we are looking uh, that that we've purchased a few companies that are that are pursuing this. There's a lot of a lot of exciting technologies that have yet to be fully explored because we are so early in the journey of this field. And for people who are more interested in this, as part of my research, I watched a video by Julio Friedman, Dr. Julio Friedman, mm -hmm. who's kind of like the carbon yeah. wrangler. And he has this amazing video from 2018. Uh, he's talking the IPCC report back then, which was the special 1.5 report. But he goes to his presentation of all the different kinds of carbon removal and what the price per ton is. So we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. That's from the Stanford Energy Lectures. Um, and, and you mentioned kind of like the 26 companies applied. I'm curious twofold what you also have done two rounds now of investments um or sorry purchases, purchases. yeah yep. i'll get that right eventually um <laughs> what have you learned between the first and the second what are you looking for in the third and then if, if feel free to add in kind of why for companies that didn't make it like what what was the difference there lesson number one there still aren't enough companies lesson number two 
we had to find new experts, additional experts in our second round of purchases because there were ideas that um, you know, we didn't have the in-house expertise to to actually evaluate. Um, and I think that is really exciting um, that we're we're still seeing and we need to see more new ideas get to the starting line. Um, a variant of the first point, I think, is that we've given five hundred thousand to a million dollars per company and we've in many cases bought out their supply for the next couple of years. Um, so we pre-purchased a number of tons from, from these companies, which is again, to underscore the fact that like, while a couple years ago, this field was demand constrained, we are currently supply constrained um, and more companies are going to be needed to meet the goals of Stripe, but also Microsoft and Shopify and all the other companies that are purchasing carbon removal. There's just not enough. There's not enough high quality supply out there at the moment. What do you see as like the role of capitalism in this whole journey? You mentioned that Stripe doesn't take equity. Like, I'm, if it feels like like you're kind of in a position of power where you're giving these companies a, like a you know a significant amount of their operating budget, why not take equity? And then it, as this industry scales up ten thousand fold or one million fold, what does the role of capitalism play? With Stripe Climate, we've really tried to focus on being the demand signal for the field of carbon removal. When a company goes to um, to raise investment capital from a VC or, or from anyone, one of the first questions that an investor asks is, you know, if this company is successful in building the thing that they say that they're going to build, is there going to be a customer for it? And historically, the answer with carbon removal has been no. So our, our theory of change at Stripe has been, we just, we want to be the customer that, that essentially says, if you build it, we will come. That gives entrepreneurs the confidence to start the company. It gives investors the confidence to invest in a carbon removal company for which there is a really small market. So it's largely been, we want wanted that demand signal to be as powerful as it can be and, and really wanted to focus our efforts there. Um, what the What is the role of capitalism in carbon removal? I mean, the, again, the challenge in carbon removal has been without the right policy mechanisms in place, it's hard for capitalism to do their job because there isn't an incentive to buy carbon removal today. There is not a forced incentive to buy carbon removal today. So to the extent that we can use policy mechanisms to create that incentive, capitalism, I think, can play a wonderful role in accelerating this ecosystem. But that's part of the reason it's gotten stuck so far. Um, and so in some ways, you know, what we're trying to do by being the demand signal is is jumpstart the ecosystem by creating a, a voluntary market when there isn't a compliance one. Um, overall, though, venture will be needed to help these companies. Investment capital will be needed to, to help these companies get started and scale. We're going to need huge amounts of project finance to actually scale the facilities that are, that are needed here. Um, and so I think there's a, a big role for, for the private sector and the public sector to play in getting this field where it needs to be. What does success look like for both you personally and Stripe Climate? I just want this, I, I, I want to get carbon removal back on track, um, or I shouldn't say back on track because it was never on track, but I want to get carbon removal to the point where we get carbon removal to the scale that it needs to be in order to make the climate math work. Um, and we know that that is gigaton, gigaton scale by 2050. With Stripe Climate, we're just trying to pull the levers that we can to get us there as quickly as possible. Um, so 
We are going to move on to the lightning round here shortly, but I did want to go back to one thing we touched on earlier, which is who, if carbon removal technologies are the miners kind of in the California gold rush, who is the Levi's, who's selling the picks, who's the housing, um, and like what of that still needs to be invented? I'm not sure I understand the question. What do these companies need along their journey so that they will be more successful? In the same way that like a miner needed picks and they needed jeans in order to like oh, kind of go I get, see. get the gold. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Companies need a couple of things. One, they need customers. Um, two, they need talent to help them build the company. Um, three, they need investment capital and capital of all different kinds, right? Investment capital, project finance, et cetera. And they need, you know, a stamp of legitimacy, right? They, they need the verification. They need the, 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 the verification to enable buyers to purchase from them in a rigorous and well-defined way. Um, and many of these different parts of the ecosystem today are, you know, still really early slash non-existent. So we have, we have our work cut out for us. Okay, super exciting. People go start those companies. Um, okay, let's let's wrap it up. Oh, I have a question. I have a question for you. Yeah. You've had you've had a lot of, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, a number of different folks on talking about carbon removal. I mean, what have you what have you learned about the ecosystem, and you know what have you found most surprising? If you're if you're open to humoring me. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm just going to add this onto our time, so I get more time with you to ask you questions. Um, I think I'm. what I've learned the most is kind of this nuance between carbon avoidance and carbon removal. We talked about the frameworks. I kind of view the framework of efficiency and innovation. Um, so efficiency gets us down from that 50 to 10, that 40 that you talked about. Innovation gets us the 10 to 0. And in carbon removal, it's the verification piece that's so fascinating. And like, how are you going to measure that you were sucked carbon out of the air, 0.0? four percent right so four basis points and you got to suck that in you have to measure that and quantify it and carbon accounting i'm super hyped and curious about like carbon accounting i feel like that is the the foundational floor that can be built today as these companies scale to 10 gigatons in the future um i don't know if i answered your question i kind of went on a got on the soapbox there and was excited um but yeah <laughs> i think that you know that's what i've learned uh, and a lot i mean the other thing that i learned is that like policy is just huge um, yeah. we didn't talk about 45 Q, but, um, yeah. originally I started the podcast with like, I want to be net zero by 2021. Uh, and you know, I was, you know, essentially starting from zero in terms of like knowledge. And I, I think the, the responsibility that individuals truly have is education, learning and voting. Like those are the two things that everyone can yeah. do most impactful today. Um, so yeah. Wonderful. Thanks for, thanks for hearing yeah, me. Yeah, of course. Um, so since becoming the head of Stripe Climate, are there any, this is kind of ironic that we're going right here, but are there any climate change no-nos, taboos, flying, you know, eating meat, all that kind of stuff that you've either changed in your life or that you've thought about differently? I eat much less meat. Um, and when my water heater broke, I bought an electric one. Oh, super cool. Yeah. We just talked with um, Oxygenate, which is building out HVAC to support the electrification of buildings. So super cool. Um, what is, so, uh, you know, I'm going to toot your horn for a second. Let me know if you don't, <laughs> you don't like this, but Harvard undergrad, Stanford grad school, two very exclusive universities. What is the best class that you've ever taken? I took a class at Stanford called um, Managing Growing Enterprises. And the whole thing was basically... Uh, 
it was basically a course in how to handle really challenging like interpersonal situations. And so it was all role play based. Um, and I think about that. I think about learnings in that class um, a lot. Uh, and I would say that, that that's probably the one that I, I think about on like a daily basis and use skills from on a daily basis. It's all the touchy feely stuff. Yeah. Love it. Um, when you think of a sustainability superhero, who or what comes to mind? Well, maybe this is a cliche answer, but um, I, I definitely think Elon Musk is up there. Um, electrifying everything is so important. And, you know, he's also working on the backup plan for, you know, if and when that doesn't, doesn't work out. But um, I think he's his vision for electrifying vehicles, the home, and then having them all interoperable with one another, I think is really inspiring. Um, and he's done it in such a, uh, in a bold way, that's a great model, I think, for the, the private sector. It was interesting is I think he, I've never met the guy, but I think he would answer that. Like the reason he does that is because those are like market failures and problems to solve. He does an interview with Joe Rogan where he talks about climate change mm-hmm. and he specifically calls out that like, Hey, like, I think we're going to figure this out. Like he doesn't spend that much time thinking about it. So super fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, what is one book, podcast, other form of media you wish everyone would read? I love Saul Griffith's work. I think he has a great blog. Um, he just released a book, which I have not yet read, but he has a lot of really um, pragmatic, well-informed and um, digestible content around what we need to do to solve climate. I think he's fantastic. I love talking about The Wizard and the Prophet, another book, uh, a, yeah. a different book, but by Charles C. Mann. I don't know if you read it. Yep, um, do you Are you a wizard and a prophet? And then just for people who uh, haven't uh, heard me talk about it before, like the wizard is the innovator. We're going to innovate our way out of this problem. Earth has no fixed carrying capacity. The prophet is like, we need to change our ways. We've got a fixed carrying capacity. And if we don't, we're doomed. <laughs> I'm probably neither of the extreme, but I would definitely bias more towards uh, more, more wizard than profit. Um, I think that that the sort of Jimmy Carter austerity era of consume less is not the way out of the climate crisis. And that, you know, coordination at that scale and asking for altruism on the order of 8 billion plus humans is unlikely um, without some (laughs) other things failing epically. So uh, innovation and and sort of technology are 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 the way that we're going to get out of this. Totally. And it fits like the total brand as well. Um, two final questions. Are you hiring? And if yes, what do you look for in a person? Yes, we are hiring. Um, we have an open role for an engineering manager on the team, a full stack engineer, and then we will likely be hiring another strategy and operations manager um, in the coming months. Uh, in general, we look for um, slope over intercept is what I, I like to, to call it. Um, looking for folks who are really smart, who are really hungry, who are really passionate about this space, but you don't have to spend time in climate before, um, but you can learn really fast. We are all learning really fast in the climate space and there's a lot of ground to cover. So being able to flex into different roles and wear a bunch of different hats um, is a real, I think, advantage for a problem that, that is shaped like climate. I am 100% going to steal the slope over intercept. That is fantastic. I've never heard that before. Wrote it down, uh, locking that in my chest of tools. Um, Last but not least, how should people get in touch or follow your work? You can shoot me an email at nransahoff at stripe.com or follow me on Twitter. I don't tweet all that much, but that's another way to get in touch. Okay, awesome. Man, thank you so much. I had a great time. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thanks again to Nan for joining us today. You can connect with her via email nranzahoff at stripe.com or follow her on Twitter at nanranzahoff. N-A-N Ranzahoff. We'll put it in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. <laughs>